Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. This week's guest is the composer and lyricist of some of my favourite shows. His hit musicals include the off-Broadway productions of John and Jen and The Wild Party. He wrote new songs for the Broadway version of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And he wrote the music and lyrics for the stage adaptations of The Addams Family and Big Fish. Now, I saw Big Fish on Broadway a couple of times and absolutely loved it. So I was very keen for us to talk about that show in detail. Here's my conversation with the musical theatre genius, Andrew Lipper. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. How have you been during the pandemic? Uh, you want the real answer or the rehearsed answer? I suppose, uh, let, let's be real. We're on a podcast, so we're supposed to be real. Uh, feeling very grateful, obviously feeling safe and well and cared for and so nothing to complain about. So uh, all the rest of it is just this bizarre series of events that have been going on and the fear and the anxiety. And uh, so some days I get a little scared about the whole thing and some days I do just fine. So I don't suppose I'm all that unique in that regard. Where have you been quarantining? Have you been in in New York City or elsewhere? I was in New York City until March 12th and then came back to my home in Columbus, Ohio. So we are in a very beautiful, we live in a historic neighborhood that has a ravine and it's right off of a river and we have a beautiful garden. And so we feel very lucky that we are not uh, in New York City at the moment. How did it feel leaving the city on the 12th of March? Uh, it was scary. Uh, we had been invited. I was in New York City that whole week, and I, I was at a number of different events. Saw a couple shows and, you know, really exposed to lots of people in lots of ways. And everybody was already, that whole week, I remember, we had a, we had an ev- I was at an event on the Monday night, the 9th, and the bartenders were passing drinks by holding napkins first that, you know, like people were being very aware by March 9th and uh, there was no shaking of hands or hugging or anything, but we were all very up close with each other. It was a cocktail party with about a hundred people in a small space. And my fiance, Tom and I were invited to the opening of six, the musical, uh, which was meant to open on the 12th of March. And on the 11th of March, we learned that someone at the theater had test- who was, had been an usher at the theater had tested positive. And so I'm friends with Kevin McCollum, who's one of the producers of the show. And Kevin told me what they had been doing to clean the theater and all of the, you know, all of the ways that it was going to be safe. And they were still planning on opening the show the next day. And Tom and I talked and, I, and Tom was planning on flying out for that. Uh, opening and we just some I just could see the writing on the wall I didn't know they were probably was going to shut down on the 12th but I I just thought this is really not smart to go into a room with 1200 people and go to a party and all of that stand go to an airport and all of that so 
Uh, I changed my flight. We canceled Tom's flight. I canceled. I changed mine. And the morning of the 12th, came back to Ohio. And uh, that afternoon, found out that Broadway had shut down. So we made the right decision in that particular case. Absolutely. What plans did you have for 2020 that have fallen by the wayside? Other, other than uh, just going to restaurants, um, <laughs> you, you know, the normal life stuff. I travel a lot. So uh, while uh, my, main at, my main home is in uh, Columbus, I'm in New York once a month for a number of days. And I'm in Los Angeles probably once every two months. And so all of that has been upended. In fact, I, I've mentioned to some friends, this is the first time in my adult life since I started working in the theater in my mid-20s. It is the first time, I think, that I have slept in the same bed for 18 weeks uh, uninterrupted. It's just kind of odd. I, I move around a lot, obviously. And um, there was meant to be a very significant production of The Wild Party that had, had yet to be announced that now is being pushed off and that was going to happen here in the United States. And the United Kingdom tour of the Adams Family was meant to uh, be in rehearsal right now. And uh, that of course has all been pushed off with the hopeful uh, feeling that it will uh, be able to return next spring. So those are, and then, you know, the, the usual, for me, it's about with all of my titles, it's, it's, uh, it's in the hundreds, if not nearing a thousand a year of uh, productions around the world. And so, you know, pretty much that's gotten down to zero. Certainly second quarter of this year, I'm guessing it's pretty much zero. So that's very strange too, that, that, you know, everybody has stopped for obvious reasons. Everybody has had to stop doing theater. You look very fresh actually for 18 weeks of sleep in the same place. (laughs) Well, like I said, sleep, I've been sleeping. You were meant to see six on the on the twelfth of March. What was the last show you saw before that? And do you hold that experience in your heart and a bit more of a sacred place <laughs> than you may have done had you seen six the next day? Uh, I'm I'm a romantic and fantasist, but that particular notion doesn't doesn't it doesn't apply to me. There, so so no. Uh, uh, the last show I saw, I do not hold more sacred than I might have otherwise. But uh, that last show was on March 10th, uh, which it was Tina, uh, the Tina Turner, Turner musical. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. And Adrian Warren's performance is just off the charts and incredible. But I know I, I, I don't. It's, it, it's odd. Like, I, I'm not having that experience that I've read a number of people writing about which is the, the absence of going to the theater feeling uh, very big at the moment. I, I, though, though I can't imagine, I don't think I've ever had this long a stretch where I haven't gone to the theater. But for, for me, it's not being able to interact in my art making. So I can't, can't be in a rehearsal. I can't, I can't be with other people making songs and making musicals. And that surely would have been going on some for one or, or, or several projects I'm working on. And so all of this remote working and working by Zoom and, and, and the internet and on the phone, while it's incredible to have this technology, it doesn't replace, a, I have a writing partner on several projects in Los Angeles and he and I, I go out to LA to stay at his house and stay with his family and there's just a, 
um, you know, there's just a tactile interaction of, of a day gone by where I live in their house for a week. I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm, that, I'm that guest who won't leave. Um, <laughs> but I live, I live in a house with Jonathan and his family, and, and we spend some hours together working on something and some hours apart working on something. And there is um, no room for that at the moment. Like, I can't, I can't do anything like that with any of my colleagues on any of my projects. All of it has to be digital. And like I said, while that's a blessing, I mean, they didn't, they didn't have this in 1918. It's still, it, it doesn't quite feel the same. So collaborating is just different and we're all managing and I'm managing to get work done, but it is different. It sounds like you're focusing on it all in a very pragmatic way. Do you think when you do next go to the theater or you do next get to have a session with your collaborators, do you think there might be an emotional side to that? Or do you think it would just be great now we get on with the work? I actually think it's the latter. I, I'm much more concerned about personal things. My, my mother being isolated in Florida and, and our, our mental health, frankly, uh, being this, this groundhog day quality of, of life at the moment where every day is the same. At, at one point, Tom said something about making... Oh, some kind of very rich food. I can't remember what it was, but I said, oh, maybe we'll do that on the weekend. And he looked at me and he said, what's a weekend? And, and it was, you know, it's this notion that all of the days seem to blend into the next. And, and he, uh, he is uh, a musician. And so Tom is having a, uh, the problem of not being able to be with others to make music, which is really what he loves to do. And, uh, he's also a teacher, and he's meant to go back into the classroom in four weeks, and um, nobody really knows if that will happen here in this particular area of the country. So, yeah, I, I haven't gotten sentimental about, uh, about work. I, I've, I've been able to work and do a lot of things, um, and I don't, I don't feel... The only thing... I, I think part of it is that much of my year is spent in isolation, writing songs and working on plays and scripts and whatever it is that I do. Um, a lot of the work I do is done alone at the computer in my own space. And then there are some very intense periods where I might be in a rehearsal period or I might be in an audition period or that sort of thing. And I didn't have any of those big things scheduled. Those productions I mentioned to you earlier were going to happen, but I wasn't involved in a substantive way in those things. So. So I'm in one of those phases in my life where much of what I do, I, I do on my own. And so, except for the thing where I mentioned being sitting across the table from a collaborator. So what I miss is uh, going to the store and, you know, going to the, a restaurant, uh, you know, a coffee shop, uh, just the, going to the gym, you know, just sort of the, the, the simple everyday interactions that break up my day. Like none of that uh, is possible. I've not been anywhere. Gosh. I'm keen to talk about all sorts of things you've done, things you've written, things you've been in. But something I learned when I was reading about you the other day was that you were born in the UK, in Leeds. I was indeed. That's actually not too far from where I'm from, also Yorkshire-born. Where are you from? Uh, so I was born in Doncaster, but I grew up in Pontefract, not that far away, but technically. I wish I, I wish I knew what either of those places were. <laughs> I was 17 months old when we moved to uh, Windsor, Canada, and then I was two months shy of three years old when we moved to suburban Detroit. But I will say I grew up in a 
British, Jewish, and learning how to be American household. And so every, uh, everything was about uh, you know, the old country, as it were. It's odd to call it that because when you say the old country, one thinks uh, you know, of, of, of people speaking another language, at least I do. Um, people my age, uh, I'm 55, and so my, my mother's 88. So, uh, so the old country would be you know, Eastern Europe or something like that, you know, in the, especially if you're Jewish. But I always say my parents were, had the had a real immigrant experience. The only exception and a significant exception is that they were fluent English speakers, uh, native English speakers. And so they certainly didn't have the language issues that uh, uh, any other immigrant uh, who doesn't speak English or, or doesn't speak English well would have coming to America, particularly in the sixties, you know, when it was, uh, I think, even more challenging for, for somebody who spoke, uh, you know, there weren't as many, oftentimes now, at least when you go to the post office, there are things in multiple languages, you know, there, were, there was none of that, as I recall, uh, when I was very little. And so uh, that being said, my parents still had, I think, a significant cultural shift over a number of years. I'm also just for, for our listeners, um, just proving to you that I am a British citizen <laughs> and I am holding up I'm holding up a passport uh, for the United Kingdom, that, that a European Union passport. So I think I must get a new one. Don't tell the um, MI6 or anybody else. Uh, it's due. It comes due next year. So I better get on that. Yeah, there is a backlog. I, I am filling out my application at the moment. So uh... well, there you go. Well, fortunately, I have a U.S. Uh, passport, too, although they won't let me in anywhere with the U.S. passport. So I'm not going anywhere anyway. Oh dear. You were living in New York in your mid-twenties when you became a composer. Before that you were a teacher. So I'm really keen to know, did you go into teaching thinking this is going to be my career or was it always the plan to become a composer? When I was in uh, university at the University of Michigan, and what we say when we go to Michigan, anybody says University of Michigan, the next thing one says is go blue. Um, it's a strange American thing. And, um, when I was at the university of Michigan, I was a voice major and I was uh, planning on studying opera, classical music, and I was, uh, uh, seriously singing. Uh, and then by the end of my first year, um, I just, I started, I started to, uh, writing my first musical, uh, my lifelong friend, uh, Jeffrey Seller, who later went on to co-produce uh, Rent and Avenue Q and The Wild Party and a little show called Hamilton. Uh, Jeffrey suggested we write a musical together when we were in college. And I uh, found uh, that I really enjoyed what that did to my brain and that it was a much more, um, all for me, writing, writing, conducting, all of the things around making songs and music in a particularly in a theatrical environment, all of those things felt much more challenging to me uh, mentally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually than singing did and uh, singing or acting. Uh, though I love to sing and act and I have studied it and I have been a singer and actor and will hopefully continue to do that. It lost its primacy. It had been that thing in high school that I thought I was going to pursue. And so about halfway through university, um, I uh, didn't know what kind of degree to get. Uh, I was still pursuing a voice degree. And again, Jeffrey, who has been a great guide in my life, uh, Jeffrey suggested that I get an education degree because I had worked at a summer camp with him and worked with kids and I was very good with kids. 
And, and again, that seemed like a, 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 a mentally challenging thing for me. And it was a, something I, I, I liked the idea of. And I thought, well, I do want to go to New York when I was 22, when I graduated college. So I, what would I do? Well, how would I make a living? And I thought, well, I would enjoy being a teacher. I'd be a good teacher, I thought. And it felt like I was using my education rather than trying to get a survival job, you know, in, in any other uh, area. And so that's what I did. I got a degree. Uh, it took me an extra semester. I had to take a spring semester in order to ca- uh, get some required courses done. And I graduated in 1987 and I moved to New York City in that summer and uh, started teaching. I was lucky enough to get a, have, I got a job at the end of my year, uh, my final year of college. And I taught at a wonderful school uh, in Manhattan where I taught uh, music to uh, 10 to 14 year olds. Oh, wow. When it came to quitting the day job, something that lots of people romanticize the idea of, did you feel like it was a risk or was it like, no, no, I'm ready now? Uh, Both. I was very, very fortunate that I was a fearless pianist. And by fearless, I, I think what I mean is I, I would I would throw myself into any situation at the piano. I felt that I was good enough as a pianist that I could read anything, I could accompany anything, particularly in my chosen profession. I, I wasn't, uh, I'm not, I didn't want to be an opera accompanist, for example. That wasn't something I knew about. But in the musical theater, I, there, wasn't, there, wa- there weren't a lot of scores that people could put in front of me that would scare me. Um, one, one time in my career, actually, I got, I got asked to perform in a John Adams opera and play one of the keyboard books. And I said, can you send me the book first? Because I want to be sure I can learn it and understand how to learn this music. I loved the music, but it is uh, not the kind of music I ever learned how to decipher with my hands. And I did look at that music and I, I turned that job down. It was one of the, one of the rare times I ever turned a job down because I just didn't know how to learn it. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to just show up and not really be able to do this. That would be stupid. So I graduated uh, from uh, being a teacher to being out of work, but knowing that I, I, I could jump into subbing or depping as you, you call it in England. And I could, I could, I could, I could rise to any musical challenge uh, that, that felt doable to me. Um, and in fact, that's been a good, um, whether, whether it's true or not, whether I have the actual talent for it or, or just a lot of chutzpah, as we might say, that led me to saying uh, yes to things like conducting the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra for two New Year's concerts with Kristen Chenoweth in front of uh, 4,000 people. And uh, I've conducted several other major symphony orchestras and, and, and again, did so with a, a great amount of humility um, and not a small amount of fear, but a certain, uh, also a certain amount of confidence because um, I had this great education and I did feel musically, uh, it was in my wheelhouse. I understood very much uh, Kristen's repertoire, for example. Again, I wouldn't conduct Brahms for, um, although I would love to, <laughs> but I don't know enough about how to rehearse that music and, I, I, and the orchestra would know much more about that music than I do. And so I've never presumed, though the careers I've always loved and wanted to emulate, though never have really, are careers like the Bernstein, of course, and Andre Previn, who, you know, started in Hollywood and ended up as the conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra and then, you know, a composer of operas, etc. You know, such an extraordinary shift, really, from 
go, you know, popular music to classical music, whereas Bernstein was always in classical music and did other things. And so I'm probably rambling, but it's fine. Uh, I'm loving the, it. There's, Just keep going. There's the there's the answer to that. And I I've always lived. I've often lived in in between the two stools. Where you know I I have a great uh, affinity for and background with classical music, and also uh, love contemporary music. So I can write a score like The Wild Party um, or uh, something like uh, The Adams Family. And then uh, but write I'm Harvey Milk, a giant concert work. Uh, you know, that uh, lives more in the classical world than in the musical theater world. So that's always been, for me, like, that's the kind of music I like to listen to. Those are the kinds of musical theater pieces that always thrill, that often thrill me. So um, I just keep following my nose on all that. You mentioned Kristen Chenoweth. I was going to bring this up much later, but I'll do it now. I'm actually reading her book at the moment. I was I was sitting in the hairdressers earlier this afternoon reading Kristen Chenoweth's book with my head in a basin. And it, it was bizarre because I just got to this page and suddenly there's this whole section about her relationship with Andrew Lepper. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. She starts off when she talks about the day that uh, you and her demoed some songs for when she was in Pushing Daisies that they might get her to sing on the show. And she talked about how she discovered you when she went to see John and Jen off Broadway and then how you became her musical director for a long time. I was hoping that you would talk about some of your maybe favorite memories of working with Kristen. Oh, we don't have enough time, I'm afraid. Uh, but um, my relationship with Kristen is uh, unique, I think, for both of us. Um, we have a, a, a sort of emotional and spiritual shorthand uh, with each other, particularly if I'm at the piano and she's singing. Though we rehearse and we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll spend time with material, there's no disagreements. Like we, we know, we both know what the tempo should be. We both know where the breath should be. We both know, and I might suggest to her, hey, what do you think about this and not that? Or, or this sounds, what if you did this and not that? But it, it's so, so unlike the way most other things you might work with other people where there's a little more talk and a little more negotiation of how the song might go. We just see things very similarly uh, and, and broadly as well in terms of our love for and you know, capacity to absorb multiple styles of music. I, I don't know, I wouldn't call myself a country singer you know, I'm not a country artist or a country writer, but neither is she. Like, she sings country songs because she has an affinity for it. She grew up with it. But she has somehow been able to bring this enormous gift of hers. And she can sing operetta and she can sing a country song. And you believe that those are authentic expressions of those songs. And I have um, been inspired by that through our working together, hoping that I can keep up with her and that I can also authentically express that kind of music as well as all the other things we've done together. She opened in Wicked in uh, 2003. And then in the autumn of 2004, she did her first Carnegie Hall, solo Carnegie Hall concert. And I was the music director for that concert as well as for her Metropolitan Opera House concert, which I was also the music director for. These were just extraordinary experiences for both of us. And I remember the Carnegie Hall concert. I wrote her a song that is published in my, uh, my big songbook that has a, a collection of songs of mine that some, some of which uh, aren't from shows. 
it's called a girl like me. And it was based on a conversation we had had this whole notion of like, what, am, like, what, how did I end up at Carnegie Hall? Like I'm from Oklahoma and drink Slurpees from 7-Eleven. And, <laughs> and so I wrote this song that was like half opera and half country. Like we were just talking about that a minute ago. I was just talking about that. You were, you were listening. Um, I hope you were listening. Oh, and, I'm listening. Um, and excellent. Thank you. And so I remember saying to her backstage, we always pray uh, before we go on stage. Uh, we come from very different spiritual backgrounds, but we are also very connected. And, and we will uh, hold hands. And anybody wants to join us, the few musicians want to join us, they do. If the stage manager wants to join us, they do. Uh, but she and I have, have always had a tradition of doing that together. And I said to her backstage before we came out at Carnegie Hall, I said, just remember, like, when they're going to go crazy for you. And she's like, really? You think so? Really? Now, remember, this was just a year after she opened in Wicked. And she was certainly becoming known by then. But I don't think anybody knew, including her, well, particularly her, that she was a superstar, like, yeah. in the way it came. And I said, just just take a moment when you get out on stage, you're going to hit your mark. I was sitting on such an, an angle at the piano where I could turn to my right, see the audience and see her over my right shoulder. And I said, if you need to look at me, look at me and we'll just make eye contact before we dive in. And I came out, started the orchestra, did this little overture. Out she comes. It was the loudest, like, I, you know, it was like a mushroom cloud of sound incredible noise roarings and and standing ovation for just showing up and she stood there for about 30 seconds while we were vamping and she turned and looked over her left shoulder at me while i was looking over my right shoulder because i had her completely i was locked on her the whole time and she looked at me with a really funny expression of like Honestly, I can't believe this is happening to me. And I, and I very big in my face, because she couldn't hear me, I said, told you, like I, you know, like I tried to really overemphasize it while we were there, because it was, that's one of the things that we do on stage is we, while we take it seriously, we never take it so seriously that we don't enjoy each other. Like we, we, we constantly interact with each other. And she then turned around and started singing the song and it was greeted by an even larger uh, response than the one for her just showing up. And I remember it was probably 45 seconds at least that we just had to wait. Like they were screaming for, for at least 45 seconds. It might've been a minute. And in the musical theater, that's a long time. I know in opera, like they do 15 minute ovations at the ends of things. It's a different tradition. And it was so great because the song hit a home run. And by the way, like we've never done that song again. It was a one-off, one and done. I, I'm very fond of that song. And we had never done it in front of an audience. This was really a, just a one-time piece of specialty material that, that we did. And it just scored so huge with the audience. And, and what that did also was it put her, it calmed everything down. Like it helped her relax and it helped the audience relax and it helped me relax. And we had just 
the most wonderful two hours, uh, you know, doing that show. So basically everything I've ever done with Kristen, it has been joyful. You, you can't see in frame, but uh, my, my one and only gold record is on the wall right over there. And it is a song song by Kristen Chenoweth uh, in Descendants, a Disney uh, film uh, called Evil Like Me. And so um, I am grateful to her for that as well. And, uh, and I hope we have many, many more times that we get to make music together. Plenty more from Andrew still to come, but if you're enjoying our conversation, please do take a minute to scroll down the page and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps the podcast reach more theatre fans just like you. If you've already done it, then thank you so much. If not, thank you in advance. Now back to Andrew. I want to talk about The Wild Party. It's one of the cast recordings I go back to the most and... One of my favourite things about your work is that you don't just write a great song. You write these beautiful instrumental pieces that also get put on cast recordings, which I can't really name another composer, certainly in modern musical theatre, where you get these great instrumental pieces like Jackie's Last Dance in the Wild Party, The Procession in Big Fish, and we'll talk about Big Fish. (laughs) What is it about the work that you feel like you can put that on a cast recording and be like yeah that that's that's part of the show it feels like a song on its own almost uh i don't know like i, I suppose i'm glad you like it and there are probably just as many people who are like what the hell and i no, know i love it i want the procession played at my funeral yeah. oh, oh heavens goodness <laughs> fine great i uh, just make sure they send the the, the check sure. um every show is different the thing about Jackie's Last Dance in the Wild Party, there, there's a lot of the Wild Party that's stolen from Verdi. I mentioned earlier my classical background, and uh, Poor Child is, there's a lot actually from Rigoletto. Uh, Poor Child is modeled on Bella Figlia dell'Amore, which is uh, the, uh, a quartet in the final act of Rigoletto, where the tenor introduces the tune, and then bit by bit, the other characters interject. And Poor Child is structured uh, initially like that, where one character introduces the whole song. And then when he comes around for a second time through it, it's some, somebody else joins in and then somebody else joins in. And it's, you know, very operatic, poor child and contrapuntal in a way that most musicals aren't. And, you know, there are many composers to thank, Stephen Sondheim being the chief among them, who does that many times in his pieces. And yet the meaning of what's going on is still incredibly clear. Unlike opera, in part, the meaning isn't clear because it's in a language I don't speak, but even uh, operas in English, when they go into those kinds of contrapuntal moments, it's often the music is the reason it happens. And so meaning is left uh, off the table or pushed to the side. It doesn't matter what the words are at the moment. Let's focus on what the music's trying to tell you. Whereas in the musical theater, you don't get those opportunities quite as often. And Jackie's Last Dance is an example of, also in Rigoletto, there's a, there's a big instrumental thing that happens before something terrible happens to Rigoletto's daughter. And there's like the sound of the wind and, and a storm happening. And Jackie's Last Dance is, is this calm before the final happenings of the wild party uh, when, when, every, when the shit hits the fan. And so I've always... When Julia lets us have it. Uh, yes. And so I guess, I mean, it was 20 years ago, so I don't even know why I put it, why I wanted that on the CD, but it, it does feel to me like 
what I can't even remember the song that precedes it, but whatever precedes it was, was, was hepped up. And then this is very, very calm thing for two or three minutes. And then we get into the tension of the, of the, the end of the, of the play. And uh, it feels to me, cast recordings oughtn't be replicas of the thing that's going on on stage because it's impossible to do that. And I think uh, I always say too much talking ruins a cast recording. Uh, some people don't agree with that. Some people include a lot of talking. I am not interested as a listener in talking on a cast recording. Doesn't interest me. If there's a few lines in between in order to make meaning of the lyric from the last lyric that was sung to the next lyric that's going to be sung, of course, then you must have some dialogue. But I work really hard with all of my cast recordings, which I've either produced or co-produced, and in every case prepared uh, whatever the recording script was to make sure that there's minimal, minimal chat. Uh, just that doesn't interest me as a listener. So that's not my particular taste. And in the case of Big Fish, since you mentioned it, the procession is another one of those examples of that melody, the that melody came very late to the party. Much like in the Adams family, that melody also came rather late in the process of making the show. And once that tune arrived in Big Fish, I was very keen on finding places for it because it, part of it is what the lyric is attached to it and how that music is used before it gets to that lyric. So that music is used in, in, in key moments in the musical, but when it gets to the song, What's Next, when the son finally agrees to give the father what he wants, which is tell him a story, fictionalize him into his own death, like tell the story of his own death with him as he's right there. Um, and that melody, the da 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 is that moment where the son says, and who do we see at the river to greet you? And I, I always, I get the chills even just saying it uh, because there's something about it that strikes such a deep emotional place for me. And when everything that leads up to it and what's next, I've never failed to see an audience weep somewhere in that song from there to almost the end of the show. Most of the audience is, is, is openly weeping. I love that. You know, I love that we were able to write something and that these characters were able to speak in this way so that the audience can connect to them. And when the character gets to that particular moment, you know, he's telling this fanciful story and he's guiding, he's literally driving his father to the, a riverbank. But when he says, and who do we see at the river to greet you? It's his way of saying, I believe you, dad. I believe you. I believe that you knew these people who I, I've doubted all along. I believe that you have nothing to hide. I believe, I believe you. And it's a kind of apology. And it's in a major key and it's the most triumphant music. And that's the wonderful thing about musicals is that, and actually, by the way, there are two or three songs that were for that, I wrote for that spot that were these ponderous, sad, angry, full of rage, whatever they were, combination of those things, songs that, that didn't express it half as well as it, what we ended up with because music does this magical thing. It, 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 it leads you first. It's this magic potion that, that you can't help but be swayed by the music first. It just is the way we're wired. And so when that sweeping melody happens, but what the character is actually saying is, I, I trust you, I believe you, I forgive you. 
I thank you. All of the things you, you, you want to say to your father when he's dying and want to hear him say to you is implied uh, in that moment with that triumphant music. And that's what I think uh, was so special about that, that moment. And so and you don't get them often in shows and you don't get them often in careers. And so I'm grateful that that particular thing happened in my, in my own career. And so that particular melody in the procession, as you mentioned earlier, is also the music, it's, it's the music of reconciliation and the music of Edward's triumphant life, even though his life was just an average life. It's still the triumph of an average life. And that's, you know, I think I've said enough about that. I should admit at this point, when I was in New York in the autumn slash the fall of 2013, Big Fish was in previews. My friend and I ended up seeing it three times in a week just because we loved it so much. That's lovely. And Thank you. The the first night we saw it, we got I think we got the last two seats in the Neil Simon Theatre. We ended up at the end of a row in the in the stalls and we had to sit one in front of the other. And it got to the point, I think it was either in Time Stops or Daffodils, where she turns around to me just to see if I'm crying as much as she is. And I was. <laughs> I will tell you, I, I, had, um, I had a somebody sitting behind me experience um, in previews. Uh, that, that somebody happened to be Harold Prince. Oh, wow. And, and I was friendly with Hal and his wife, Judy. And my seat that night happened to be in front of Hal and Judy. And I was like, oh, Lord. Now, of course... They've gone through this thousands of times, you know, sitting on the aisle taking notes for their show and, you know, the show in previews. And, and so, it, you know, I don't think it mattered to them whatsoever that I was sitting in front of them. In fact, they probably liked it. And at the end of Stranger, which is a, a song that comes within the first half hour of the show, Hal put his hand on my back. Oh. At the end, while the audience was applauding, he just put his hand on my back. And I, you know, I, oh. I just like, that's the, the, I don't need anything else ever again. You know, it's like, that yeah. was, okay, great. Thank you. Oh that my goodness. Pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And like, like you mentioned about that, that sequence from what's next all the way through to the end of how it ends, just, it, just constant tears, constant tears. But uplifting tears as, as well, not not just oh my god, this is horrendous and really sad. Just life affirming. I, I love a good cry, so I, I I don't mind that you say that. I I, I do I love. Um, I, I think if an audience is willing to go on the on the journey of that story, and that's always the challenge with Big Fish, it's whether or not somebody's willing to go with it. it, it, it you know, if they if they're not willing to go with it, then they're not going to cry at the end. I suppose that's true about any show. We found it particularly true about Big Fish because Edward Bloom is a fantasist and some people just don't have strong reactions to people who, who, who don't, um, how odd, it's, the, it's kind of like the way the world is at the moment. People, who, people, people in significant roles who don't tell the truth. So it's uh, not that we ever wrote Big Fish as a political parable, it's not, not even remotely. But um, if you do agree to get on board with the story, then that moment somewhere in what's next, it may not be the first time you cry, but I think it will be the most sustained time you cry when you get down to the river and then he sees everybody and he says, he speaks to them all. And, and then 
he, he says, I remember this. Like I've seen this before. Cause that's the thing he says a number of times during the show that he's seen the exact details of his death. And then, then the part that always gets me really is um, when he says, and in my child's imagination, I remember you though. I didn't know if we were friends foes or friends, foe or friend. But, it, but now I'm standing here. I see the vision coming clear. I know, for friends, right, foes are friends. I know exactly how this ends. And it lands on this sort of expectant chord. And then I remember when I wrote that, I wrote that whole setup and I remember thinking, how does it end? Like I asked myself, like, how does, like, what is it you sing? What do you sing when you're this guy? What is it that actually matters the most to you? And what has mattered the most to him all along? And what hasn't he said yet that we all know watching it, but he hasn't said it and we want him to say it, but we don't even know that we want him to say it. And he goes, I know exactly how this ends. And it just sort of holds there. The music uh, stops. There's a pause. And I always, I always wanted Norbert to take a longer pause because I, I just think that pause is, is that moment where it's like, say it. Well, you know, what is it? And then he looks at his wife and he says, it ends with you. And that, for me, that's the floodgates. That's, that's really the floodgates because it's that thing that if you get the opportunity to say something true in the work you're doing, when you make a, when you make a show, if, if, if you get to actually say something true that people read as true, that your audience sees as true, then you've, done, then you've really figured out that moment, you know, and, and you hope for that 100% of the time. And, you know, I don't know that anybody gets to that 100% of the time, but you, you, you swing for 100%. And it ends with you, it ends with me, it ends the way a story's ending is supposed to be. A bit insane, a touch of pain, a depthly told, yet uncontrolled and in that moment in uncontrolled uncontrolled there's these very ugly chords that that push through on the word uncontrolled because that is it, it's the thing i learned in my 40s when i was writing this show is that you know like uh, you know life is not puppy dogs and rainbows like life is pain a touch of pain life is uh, things that are not controllable and you know these are you know, those are the lessons that you learn if you live long enough and you stay awake to, to reality. And, the, and, and it turns out he, he understood it. He knew what it was. And so I love this guy. I think in part, I love Edward Bloom so much because I, I, I am so much like this guy. And John August, my phenomenal collaborator and partner on this show, John and I very much identified with Will and Edward. He, John was Will. John very much was Will, and he was facts and dry and, and, but not without a heart, but just John, that's John's basic, you know, part of his basic uh, DNA, not all of it, but part of it. And for me, part of my DNA is this fanciful, off the, you know, fly off the handle, storytelling, crazy man who has to be reined in sometimes, and it's hard to know 
uh, in real life, it's hard to know when you know me. Like, is this real? Is he, does he mean this? Is he really that upset? You know, it's like, I have a lot of that. And so that's, I think, the reason I always wanted to do Big Fish was because I wanted to write about myself, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. I think that's a reason why anybody writes, to be honest with you. you. You write about how you feel and what you see and how you see it through the characters you choose to write about. That show had the most, you know, the phenomenal music, the the incredible cast, Susan Stroman. It was alchemy, the whole thing. And yet, sadly, its run was, was cut short. How do you look back on that experience? That must have been quite a hard pill to swallow at the time. Uh, yes, it, it's never fun when a, when a show runs a short time, particularly because it takes so long to get them there. Uh, Big Fish, from the moment I met John August and we started talking seriously uh, when we got together to write, I wrote a couple songs and he wrote some scenes. From that moment to the time we opened on Broadway was uh, almost nine years. And so, but, but actually the Adams family was a much more emotionally haranguing experience for a number of reasons. One is the expectations for the Adams family were so enormous because it was the famous characters and we had stars in the show and there weren't a lot of shows opening that season and Spider-Man was supposed to open that season and take all of the attention from the press, but it kept delaying its opening and didn't open until after that season. And so we became one of only, only a few musicals that opened that season and only two that had much of a run was us in Memphis. And Amazon was a, a difficult birth a lot of drama around making that show. And the criticism of that show was just enormously challenging at the time. There was an article, in fact, in the New York Times only a few months ago about how 10 years on, The Adams Family is among, well, it's the most successful title in the United States in the past five years oh, wow. uh, in terms of number of productions, um, but how successful it's been all over the world in every language it's been translated into multiple recordings, etc., and how it continues to be successful thank goodness. And the article said the critics, uh, you know, hated it in New York or something like that, but, but it, went, it went on to be a hit. You know, the show that, that looked like a flop that became a hit. And that's the true story of the Adams Family. So once all of that happened, like I went and, and, and I was, uh, you know, it was my first big Broadway show. So it, it was emotionally really challenging and, and yet it was very successful. So it, it helped me in my life. It helped me financially. It, made, it did it very well everywhere it went. And so by the time we got to Big Fish, I had gone through that experience. So I was feeling, you know, it can't be worse than that. Like, you know, maybe, maybe it'll have a shorter run and maybe people won't like it. And maybe, 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 maybe. But the Adams Family had had a pretty good run. It ran for about two years and it had a very successful 14-month tour in the U.S. initially and then another tour after that and then all these other productions. And the good thing about that was I had that. Okay, so I've done a show and it's done that. It's had this kind of success and it's not Hamilton, but what is? You know what I mean? It's like you, 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 don't, you can't name for that. That's a rare occurrence. And so it did very well. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I'm not going to die 
it basically is how I felt. Like no matter what happens, I'm not going to die. I made it through the other one just fine. And by the way, these were all like first class problems to have. I'm not, <laughs> I don't want anybody to feel sad for me or think I'm feeling sad for myself. And then Big Fish came along and it didn't, it didn't run. And we still were able to get it recorded and licensed and published and uh, people do it. And it's it just had this wonderful production in Seoul, uh, South Korea, uh, directed by Scott Schwartz. That was a very big success and it's meant to go on tour and it's approaching, oh, I think we're getting in the next, well, if it hadn't been for 2020, we would be approaching a thousand productions wow. uh, in about the past five years. That's, that's a, you know, that's an amazing success for a show that only ran three months and that you ask uh, anybody in the musical theater, I think not anybody, but a good number of people I know, I've heard from in the musical theater or I've heard about, it's beloved. A lot of people really do uh, feel strongly about that show. And so on to the next, right? The next one. Absolutely. One thing I'm, I'm desperate to know, are we ever going to get your version of The Wild Party in the UK? You know, I hope so. Eventually, um, there's some issues uh, surrounding it that have to do with the rights in the poem and the, on which it's based. And so, you know, I, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, so I have no idea. So uh, it would be great. And perhaps somewhat we're off in the future, we will. But I, I can't I can't say more than that. Well, fingers crossed. Do you have a favorite theater that you've worked in in the world? Mm, I will not. Nah, you know, theaters are awesome. I, we did the Adams Family in Australia. It opened in Sydney at the Capitol Theater. And that theater... To me, when you say theater, when you say a big, you know, it's a big theater, but when you say a big theater and you look out at all those red seats, that's what a theater is supposed to look like. And for me, and it's, I can't even tell you like what style it's in and what year it was built, but it is, you know, it all, it's an old school, old style, old European style theater, not a modern building. And it's just, spectacular and uh, so I did love being there in Australia for for that production and to see that theater was that was really something very special also performing at Disney Hall it's not a theater it's a concert hall but Disney Hall in Los Angeles is a pretty special place and uh, that that's a wonderful stage to perform on you've worked with some incredible artists throughout your career do you have any dream collaborators, either people you'd love to work with who you haven't had the chance yet or people that you've worked with and would love to again? Are there any people I haven't worked with? You know, pretty much, yeah, there are so many people I haven't worked with, obviously. And uh, I'm trying to think of who I could mention that that would not just be a pie in the sky, silly thing to say. But I do lo love anything I've ever seen that Stephen Daldry has directed. And uh, I've met Stephen a few times and uh, it would be amazing to find something where we could connect uh, and, and do something together. Also, there, there are people outside of the theater who have theatrical instincts or want to work in the theater. I'm friendly with Roxanne Gay. I don't know if you know her work. She's a writer and screenwriter and a public intellectual and she's a professor and she's just extraordinary in every way and every conversation we've ever had. She knows my work and she writes op-eds for the New York Times and 
I wrote her uh, some a few years ago telling her how much I love this particular article she'd written. And she wrote me back and she said, wait a minute, are you, are you Andrew Lippa who wrote The Wild Party? <laughs> and I said, um, yes. And she wrote me back and she said, I love The Wild Party. I listen to it all the time. And so I would love to work with, with, with Roxanne on something that would be pretty amazing. I've never worked with Kelly O'Hara. We have a great affection for each other. We know each other, but we've never worked together. And uh, I've worked with a number of the, of the reigning leading ladies of my generation, but not with Kelly and not with Audra either. And I would love to work with Audra McDonald on something. So that would be, that would be very special. And, uh, you know, repeat collaborations, you know, I, if anybody's listening, of course, I'm going to say all of them, but uh, I, I have a real affection for, have, and have become very good friends with Jerry Zachs who directed The Addams Family. And Jerry, you know, inherited, like I did, a style of comedy that was born by, born of Jewish immigrants in America. And he has a lot of insight and, and seemingly endless well of, of ideas. Jerry's sense of humor, uh, much like mine, comes from that same uh, well well. And so uh, we just, uh, whenever I get new jokes that, that really tickle me, I will text him and I will say, are you, are you available? Can, I've got a joke. And then, you know, and sometimes 15 minutes later, he'll call me. He goes, I, I, I'm ready. I'm like, are you sitting? I'm like, where are you? Are you in a private place? Oh my you know, and, and then like to make sure that he can focus on the joke. And then I delivered the joke. And, you know, and if Jerry laughs at the joke, it's like when I interviewed Steve Martin. I interviewed Steve Martin for an event in 2016. And I did a lot of preparation. I know a lot about Steve Martin's career, but I still was really nervous. And we had a wonderful chat. And early on, I said something that made him laugh. Because I thought if I don't make him laugh, if I don't do something a little weird, this is going to be a really boring interview. And he sat with his arms crossed like this, with his arms crossed. And, and he went, huh. And, I, and inside, I said, I made Steve Martin laugh. And so I feel that way about Jerry as well. If, if I make Jerry laugh, then somehow I've like earned the right to talk to him. It's so strange, but it's so much fun to make Jerry laugh because he's also a very, he's a very big laugher. Like when he gets it, he yeah, really yeah. laughs. So uh, I know some people who laugh and they, you kind of aren't sure they're laughing. So it, that's just not my particular style. So uh, I would love the opportunity to work with Jerry again. That would be something special. Amazing. Thank you so much. I've got so much out of this. It's been so cool to dissect bits of your music and hear about the, the inspiration and the process and, and all of it. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you were able to give me your time. Well, thanks for taking the time and thanks for inviting me and good luck with everything. Nice meeting you. Thank you so much. Like Andrew mentioned at the beginning, the UK tour of The Addams Family has been postponed, but I have it on good authority that it will happen next year instead. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to never miss the next one and head over to our YouTube channel for more interviews and performances. Next week, I'll be chatting to a cast member from the first show I'm planning to see when all of this is over. I'll let you know who it is on Instagram later this week. Make sure you're following at Backstage With. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Listening.